Would you open God's precious holy word to Philippians chapter 1? I'm going to go back and review beginning in verse 12, 12, 13, and 14, and then we'll be in verses 15 through 18. There are passages, of course, when one teaches and preaches through a book of the Bible. Occasionally, there are passages that are unpleasant. But it's there, and it has a teaching to it, so we learn from it. And the message here in verses 15 through 18 has a focus on troublemakers in the church. You never have to look for troublemakers. They just seem to emerge on their own. Uh, they are described here in uh, this passage of scripture. There's a lot to learn here in these verses 15 through 18, not just about uh, the perspective, uh, Paul's perspective of uh, rivalry, rivals, those who rise up to be rivals of the preacher, for example, here, Paul, uh, but also underscores how even in the early church, the church in the New Testament never, never skirts the issue. The church was filled with issues. The church has always been filled with issues. There have always, there have always been conflicts, rivalries in the church. Uh, here, the Apostle Paul addresses in this text where we are, in the context where we are, what he is facing but it's, it stands on what we previously studied. So let's go back. This is what we looked at last week. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Now, let's set Paul uh, in his environment. He is in Rome. He is in prison. He is constantly chained to a member of the palace or Praetorian guard. They have, according to historians, six hour shifts. We learn that the crowds are great. Paul is able to rent his own home, so he's, he's under sort of house arrest. He's still imprisoned, and they're not going to let him roam about freely, but it didn't matter because the people were coming to him. He didn't have to go to the people. Uh, they were coming from all over Rome, even from the household of Caesar, as we will learn later in Philippians. But also the Praetorian Guard, whose main job was to protect Caesar and his household, uh, were introduced to the gospel of Christ, many of them undoubtedly saved and reporting their salvation experience and offering their testimony to Christ to their other palace guards. They, they lived in a fort to themselves. We talked about that last time. And uh, they, were, they were highly regarded and very elite 
in, in their skills. So Paul was chained to a Praetorian guard 24-7. He never had any privacy. Think about that. He couldn't sleep without being chained to a guard. He couldn't eat a meal. He couldn't <laughs> go to the bathroom. He couldn't do anything by himself. He never had any privacy. This was for two years. Chained to a Praetorian guard. Now those guys got to change out every six hours, but not Paul. Paul had one of them hooked to him, chained to him all the time. So the people were coming from all over Rome to hear this man. You remember on a particular occasion in the New Testament, one of the leaders of the city was, cities where Paul was talked about Paul being the man who was turning the world upside down. The message of Christ through Paul into Europe was changing the world of Rome in that day. So then people knew where he was. They were coming from all around Rome. The gospel of Christ had reached into the household of Caesar even. Many were saved there. We'll see that as I said later. Not only that, but folks from other churches that Paul had been instrumental in planting in Europe were coming to see him and they were bringing gifts to him so that he could continue to rent his house and, and support himself. So the, the, the work and ministry of the apostle Paul has not stopped. If anything, it has intensified because now, as I said last time, here being chained and not traveling freely the roads of Rome Paul writes his inspired epistles, the prison epistles, one of them being this letter to the Philippians. What happened is there was a church in Rome. As a matter of fact, it had to have been formed by Jews who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This is the only explanation that there can be. There were some churches apart from Paul's missionary work that popped up after the day of Pentecost in various parts of the Roman Empire, Rome being one of those places. So apparently Jews who had received the message of Christ came back to Rome and planted the church at Rome, the Roman church. In church history, the church at Rome because of Rome had always considered itself in an elite position. And the leaders of the church at Rome didn't always want to go along with apostolic doctrine and the teaching from itinerant missionaries like the Apostle Paul. They were very, apparently very strong personalities, very strong-willed. And perhaps some of them had positions of some kind of authority in the city of Rome. But, but Roman Christians at the outset just were different. And of course, then the church at Rome became the church at Rome. While churches in other ways uh, developed differently. So Paul is in Rome. He's speaking about the gospel in Rome. The brothers 
and sisters in Christ who are in Rome, the Roman church. And he says this, most of the brothers, not all of them, the gospel, he says earlier, had become well known through the whole Praetorian guard and everyone else. That would be everyone in Caesar's household and beyond that, those especially with whom Caesar's household mixed, which would be an upper crust of society, and then from there, household slaves and so forth. So the gospel, the, 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 the gospel that lives in Christ and, and is a living thing is spreading, but we're talking about Rome here, okay? The church at Rome. And he's referencing the brothers, most of the brothers, parentheses, in the church at Rome, close parentheses. That's what's to be understood against this whole thing. Having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Now there was something about many of the Roman Christians that caused them to be afraid of freely proclaiming Christ. Somebody was holding Christians under their thumb. And until they recognized and witnessed the effect that Paul was having, even in his chains, they didn't really feel comfortable or free teaching Christ, preaching Christ, proclaiming the gospel. But now Paul says, they've become confident in the Lord because of my chains, and now they have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Now, before I go to the next slide, I want to show the emphasis here on the word most. That means most, but not all. There were some of the brothers who were not like these brethren who were supportive of Paul and who followed his example and who were encouraged by Paul's chains. So with that then as the foundation, let's look at the next thing. Now we're talking about, uh, we're talking about rivalry within the church here in the first part of this, uh, of this portion of scripture. So most of the brothers encouraged by Paul, however, some, now continue in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are proclaiming Christ. And I have uh, the different ways, uh, five of them, that they uh, showed to be rivalries to Paul and contentious people. Now, Paul, in the previous slide, called them brothers. They are not anti-Christ, they are anti-Paul. Now, if you, if you leave that alone, it sooner or later obviously develops into an anti-Christian attitude uh, and, and personality. Some, to be sure, are proclaiming Christ, number one, from envy. And that word means jealousy. Phthonon. Greek word means to be jealous. We know what jealousy means. Uh, to be jealous of someone, that's to, to be desirous, uh, to, to despise that person because that person seems to be on a plane or a level that doesn't please you. And you don't want that person 
on that level. And that makes you jealous. And, and jealousy then begets strife or contention or argumentativeness. And so this jealousy leads to rivalry or, or strife. They are proclaiming Christ, number one, from jealousy. So here is Paul. The, well, the previous, the, the word popped up first in the previous slide, but it comes up again where Paul says that he is defending the gospel. He is in defense of the gospel. Now the word defense up there, it comes from apologia, uh, apology, the apologetics of ministry. You know, they're, man, they're all kind of hermeneutics, homiletics, yada, yada, yada. And then you have uh, apologetics, which is to, to defend the doctrine that you're teaching. Someone dares to rise and object, supposedly with some kind of knowledge or fact that must be disproven and shown to be inferior to that which you defend. That's apologetics. Now, in the case of the ministry of apologetics today, of course, there are ministries of apologetics where those who spend their lives studying that particular uh, part of of ministry um, develop their ministry so that they can uh, refute those who claim to have a superior knowledge or facts that would that would quote, disprove, close quote, the Bible or the gospel or whatever. And there are some great ministries in apologetics. Um, Now, to me, apologetics is a genuine thing insofar as it truly defends the gospel against those who attack it. I'm, I'm not in the camp of those who just want to create a debate just for the sake of creating a debate. I mean, if there's if there's not room there. You know, a a person can be so deeply uh, rooted in something that they just uh, they're just troublemakers themselves. So I'm I'm, I don't think apologetics ought to be entered into for the sake of debate or argument, but for the sake of the cause of Christ in that in that through confidence in the Lord and the absolute truth, absolute truth cannot be attacked. I mean, it's, it's, it stands, it stands beyond fiction. And when one stands with absolute truth, then that which another thinks is knowledge or fact crumbles into either theory or fiction, but never truth. Now therein is the apologetics of ministry. And that's what Paul is engaged in at this point in his ministry. He says so. He said so earlier and he says so again here, but I'm not there yet. Uh, so they're proclaiming Christ, number one, from envy. They're jealous of Paul. Paul was an extraordinarily intelligent man. He was, he was at the top of his class in the school of Gamaliel. It was probably the top, uh, the, the top Hebrew study place and, and, and teacher in Jerusalem back in its day. There was no greater teacher of the scriptures than Gamaliel. And so Paul was a master of the Hebrew. He was a master of the history of his people. He was a master of the doctrine of God as it was presented in the Old Testament. He was a master of everything that was in the Old Testament. 
And that's why, obviously, he was chosen to debate Stephen in the book of Acts. It was obvious that he was the debater of Stephen, and he couldn't beat Stephen. And the only alternative was to stone Stephen to death. Let's just shut this guy up. He's, he's saying things we can't, you know, because if you go back and read the book of Acts regarding Stephen, he carried them back into their own Old Testament. You want to debate somebody about what he's going to say, you go back and read what he's written. You read his dissertation and you read his bibliography and you see who he follows. And now, now you have a profile of the guy and you can just pick his profile apart. Uh, and you can find that that which he thinks of as a set of principles set in stone actually stands on sand and it's easily dismantled. Well, that's what Stephen did. Uh, Paul, however, was masterful in what he did and he uh, became a persecutor of the church. Convinced that uh, the church was was an offshoot, uh, 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 it was an aberrant offshoot of Judaism. And so he sought to destroy it. And it was Gamaliel who said, you know, you can try if you want to, but if this is a God, you can't do anything about it. And, and that's the way it happened. And of course, Paul was arrested on the road to Damascus. Now, Paul spent three years in, in the desert alone reflecting upon his scriptures, his experience with Christ, and being taught by the Holy Spirit the truth of the word of God. He emerged from that then within some time to become the great missionary preacher and church planter that he was. And he stood not only against those in the synagogue. You remember whenever he went into place, he first went to the synagogues. And then, and then he stood against the pagans, the paganism. He argued Christ on Mars Hill. I've, some of you perhaps have stood there uh, on Areopagus. It's a, it's a tall, narrow hill. And just there, not far away, uh, is the Acropolis, where they worship the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom, just there. And so on this higher, narrower mountaintop where the, where the Areopagites met, supposedly the most intelligent men in the world, 30 of them, they brought Paul from the city square who was preaching Yeos Kai Anastasia, Anastasia. Jesus and resurrection, and they thought that he was preaching a new God and the consort goddess, that Jesus was the God and that resurrection was the goddess. And not having heard that, he came to the uh, Mars Hill, and there he proclaimed Christ. And the 30, the 30 had nothing to say except at the end of it, Wow, we're going to have to hear you again on this matter. Because he brought to them their own history. Paul said to the Areopagites, now if you have to think about this, against the backdrop of thousands and thousands of people on a regular basis all day long filing through the Acropolis, the temple to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And Paul stood there against that backdrop. And he said, by the way, I was roaming through your city here in Athens and I noticed that you built an altar to the unknown God. 600 years earlier, a plague had stricken uh, the city of Athens and they were dying everywhere. 
hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people. And so according to the historian, the, uh, it was um, Demosthenes, I don't know, one of those Greek guys, had the idea that they should loose every animal from every barn and corral in the city. And whenever an animal came to rest, if there was no nearby temple, they should slaughter that animal and build an altar to the unknown God. Because all of the other gods had been prayed to and there was no result, the plague hadn't been lifted until... They built an altar to the unknown God and that altar still stood. And Paul said, I have come to proclaim that God to you. You were ignorant before, but now you're not going to be ignorant anymore. Now, this is the Apostle Paul proclaiming Christ to the 30 greatest minds in the world against the backdrop of the goddess Athena and the worship there too. So Paul was a brilliant man. These 30 men, they were alchemists, they were doctors of law, they were doctors of history, doctors of astrology and whatever. Everything you could think of was represented among those 30 brilliant uh, scholars. And not a one of them can argue against the apostle Paul and the gospel of Christ. Now, fast forward to where we are. Paul is here, and because he is obviously so intelligent that, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to talk about debating people with half his brain tied behind his back or something like that. I don't know. Well, the Apostle Paul uh, blew everybody away. I'm sure that many of the visitors who came to him would have been pagan priests to argue their god or goddess, uh, historians from Rome, uh, elite uh, scholars and probably politicians. They could not debate against Paul. That made the other brothers who were leaders, preachers in the church at Rome, that made them jealous. Well, he sounds smarter than I do. And so they begin to preach. Well, that stirred them up to preach Christ. And they said, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna have to preach Christ, but I'm going to have to come at this. I got, I, got to have a, I got to have a gimmick, you know. I got to have a way to hook people in. Uh, so, so they preached it, number one, from jealousy, and that led to strife. Because obviously, the, the preaching from jealousy didn't work that well, so it created contention, strife. But some of the Roman brethren preached from goodwill. Now that word in the, in the, in the Greek text, yodikian, it means well-pleased or to be satisfied. They were, pleased, they were pleased with what Paul was doing and the way he was debating it and his apologetics that no one could stand and argue with him. He was preaching Christ and him crucified. Nobody could argue against the sinfulness of man. Philosophers would try but when confronted with their own lives, they had to confess, well, yeah, I did a little something wrong once or twice, once or twice. So jealousy, then strife, but then some from goodwill. The latter ones, that is those who preached from goodwill, because of love. Paul says they love me because it's personal to Paul here in the context. 
knowing that I am appointed. Now that word appointed, kemai, uh, kemai, it means it's a military term. I am set to duty. I am duty bound. I am set to this duty to defend the gospel for the defense. And there's the word apologetics, uh, the word that from that becomes apologetics for the defense of the gospel. Therefore, in the greatest city in the world at that time, with the greatest religious minds of the time, with the greatest scientific minds and historical minds and political minds, it didn't matter, with the greatest minds of the time, probably rivaling the minds of Areopagus, I don't know, but these were, these were two places where the most intelligent people in the world came to Paul and Paul was set before them and they could not argue against the gospel of Christ. This is what I'm duty bound. This is why I'm set here. I have this appointment from my master, from my commander for the defense of the gospel. Well, let me tell you something. If God puts you in the ministry and then specializes that ministry from great conviction, he'll, he will, you know, you're like, like, uh, you're like a piece of clay, but then through time, God molds it into a work of beauty. And this is what has happened to Paul. Everything in his life before him brings him to this moment. And he is prepared and he's filled with the spirit of God. And you cannot, when the man is sincere in his calling and he knows what his calling is, you cannot argue against it and you can't put him down regardless of how you try so he says, I'm set, I'm duty bound for the defense of the gospel. Now he just referenced the latter people, the ones of envy and strife. Uh, I mean, the ones of goodwill, but now he goes to the former ones, the bad ones, envy and strife. The former ones proclaim Christ. And here's the next thing, envy, strife, selfish ambition. They're thinking only of themselves. Here's what people think sometimes in church. They think this guy is so good at what he does, he makes me look bad. So what? Define bad. Who can say? There are so many people in the world that can do so many in, in the church that can do so many things in the church so much better than I can, for example. I just, I feel ashamed and humiliated so many times in so many ways in the presence of those who really shine when they're in the setting where they're supposed to be. See, this is, this is not where I bloom. I might bloom somewhere else, but this is where this, this person blooms. But there are people then who compare themselves with others in that setting and they become jealous. I don't like the attention that person is getting. So they're proclaiming Christ then out of selfish ambition. It gets worse. See, it started out with jealousy. Then it became contentious and argumentative. And now it becomes personal, selfish ambition. You know, this thing's what I do in Christ is supposed to be about me. That's what they're thinking. And, and I'm supposed to be the one to whom people would come from all over Rome and ask these questions. They're not coming to me. They're going to Paul. I'm a leader of the church at Rome. 
And they're going to this guy. And he's in prison. He's a prisoner. So, they're preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, thirdly, out of selfish ambition. Uh, that's, a, that's a word, epitheus. I have it highlighted up there. It's an interesting word. It's a, it's a word that was born out of the political world. It's a word that describes people who realize that they can never attain for themselves what this person is. So the only way for them to make themselves look better than this person is to tear this person down. I've seen that in church. I had a staff member that way one time. You know, I'm, I'm not reaching where I want to reach so that people will glorify me. And this other staff guy, they just seem to follow him everywhere. I'm going to have to start. And he started telling stuff and started doing stuff and building little cliques and and criticizing, trying to drive that person down. Well, if you can't build yourself up anymore, then you're going to have to go and tear that person down. Gossip and whatever, tail-bearing. I would, I'll tell you this, a Christian should never be involved in that kind of thing. Never. There's never a place for it. Never. Um, because it only, it only serves the devil. That's all. So here, their motivation moves to selfish ambition. I said it was a political word. It spoke of a politician who was running against somebody and that person was better than him and the only way that he could glorify himself was just to attack that, attack that person and try to make that person look bad. So since I can't be any better, I'm gonna to try to make that person look worse. Now that don't happen today in politics, but it did in Rome. To attack someone to make yourself look better. That's crazy. Then again, what they are doing, they are not doing purely. Now that word up here uh, goes back to the word it identifies with, which is the defense of the gospel. There is pure doctrine. There is purity of doctrine. There is purity. Purity of exposition and exegesis. Purity of hermeneutics and homiletics. There is purity of presentation regarding the word of God. Purity. As far as you can, reach for the depths of the truth of what is being presented. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Present it. And it's truth. And these guys obviously were attacking Paul's apologetics. And so they were coming from impurity. They were having to either add to or take away from the word of God. And the worst indoctrinations that have ever been seen in the church came out of the church at Rome. They kept adding things. I, I have all of these uh, history books about all of their meetings that they had and they added this and added that and added this and added that. So it's already beginning here in the impurity of their presentation regarding the gospel of Christ. The next motive they have is, number five, thinking to add tribulation to my, to my chains. Now the word tribulation comes from the word flipsis. 
Um, and in this form, it's uh, flipsin. Egarin. Toys this place, my chains, to my chains. Paul been chained for two years. Never apparently got to take his chains off. And there wasn't, there wasn't any such thing as Vaseline intensive care or whatever. It added friction, pressure, friction. The friction of the chains became irritable. I, I, my guess is, from what I read here, thinking to add this friction, this pressure to my chains, I'm just going to hazard a guess. This is a gospel according to Charles and Taylor. Leave it. But I've, I've, <laughs> I've been chafed before. I guess I don't know. I was as a baby anyway. This constant friction creates pain and problems. Now it's one thing to have severe. I bet some people, I don't want to have a show of hands, but I bet some people have, have had shingles before. It is not a pleasant thing. Now, Paul's irritation may have approached even the pain of shingles. I, I, I don't, but I'm sure it hurt. It was painful. Now, that's a physical pain that kind of stays on your mind all the time because it hurts so much. These guys are now adding emotional pressure to Paul's physical pressure. This is, he says, it's their thought that they're going to add to the friction of my chains another pressure, which is their rivalry against Paul. Now, they have the freedom to go all over Rome and demean Paul and his defense of the gospel. And he doesn't have that freedom. So they're thinking to add this tribulation to my chains. Here's what he says. So what? You have to like it. So what? Here's the way I see it. Let me tell you something. Paul, uh, Paul tells us here that the Lord... gives us a message but there are restrictions to the messenger so we're talking about there is a message and the message obviously is from truth Christ is proclaimed whether in pretext or in truth pretense or in truth pretext, pretense, same word, same thing it means that I have an ulterior motive in what I'm doing, well that's okay if just preach Christ. Paul says, this thing is not about me. It's about the gospel of Christ. So, you know, you can say anything you want to about me. I don't care. So what? He says, it's just this. And this is what makes me happy and makes me rejoice. Only that in every way, whether in pretext, pretense, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So you see, God is accomplishing his purpose of evangelism even through this. 
So, you know, the, the crux of the message for you and me is to bloom where you're planted and trust God, regardless of what's happening. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. They're not bothering me. They're not hurting me. I rejoice. There would be no gospel of Christ being spread across Europe had it not been for the Holy Spirit working through Paul at this level. Now, they first brought it from Jerusalem, so church historians say, after the day of Pentecost. But now the world is stirred up to understand the gospel through Paul's ministry. And Paul has to rejoice in the reflection of the truth that God has actually used him. I've been used of the Lord and this makes me rejoice. And in this I rejoice. Not just now. I'm going to continue to rejoice. I will rejoice. In the Greek form, it's going to keep happening. So, God finally and at the end of all things will receive the glory. Now, those who deserve punishment will be punished. That's not me to determine. That's, that's not my job to punish people. My job is to proclaim Christ, to teach the word, to proclaim it. God takes care of everything else. You just have to trust it. Paul will come back to prison. He gets loose for a little while. Then he comes back and he writes to Timothy. He writes 2 Timothy, last thing he writes. In chapter one of 2 Timothy, here's what he says. He says, everybody in Asia has forsaken me. Homogenous Phrygia. God bless the house of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. Implying that although he couldn't be there, he supported Paul, but he wasn't there. Nobody. So Paul is back to Rome, having made this defense of the gospel, and he has written the purity of the doctrine in the letters that he has written, and he's become well known. And here's a church at Rome, and nobody in the Roman church comes to support him, not a person. Then you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he says this. He says, no one came to my defense, my support, no one, not a single person. When I came to defend the gospel, and this is at the end of it all, no one came to my support. The whole church at Rome had forsaken him. And then he ends it like this, but the Lord was with me and gave me strength. What else could you ask for? That the Lord would be with you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Call on him to save you for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. We're going to have a prayer here in just a moment. We'll be dismissed. As we're dismissed, as you exit this room, you will notice that there are deacons and wives standing in the doorway of rooms just there as you leave across the hall. If God calls you to Christ, let them pray with you today before you leave. Maybe you hear God is calling you to come and be a part of this congregation. They're ready to pray with you and we're ready to take care of all the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. Just now let's prayerfully stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.